Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. Latter-day Survivors. This is Kendra and Dana. Today we're interviewing Brenda Nicholson and uh, we're happy to have her here. We're excited to hear her story. How are you doing today, Brenda? I'm doing good. Welcome. Are you excited to tell your story? Um, sure. <laughs> I feel like I've, I've told it in bits and pieces, you know, a lot, but um, yeah. Yeah. We, we get that a lot, that people have told bits and pieces of their stories here and there, but maybe have never told their whole story in one sitting. Is that kind of how you are? Yeah, and honestly, the amount of story that I could tell would probably, you know, be an entire podcast on its own, so we'll have to, yeah, but we'll hit the highlights or the lowlights or whatever you want to call them. So. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, well, um, Dana and I usually just kind of... Uh, chime in here and there but otherwise we let you tell your story and minimize our interruptions so that you can keep your train of thought and continue telling your story as you would like to okay okay so we'll let you get started all right well um i guess to start with i should let everybody know that i grew up in the flds the fundamentalists um I was actually born into the mainstream or corporate Mormon church is what we called it when I was growing up. Um, My parents were members of the LDS church. Um, All of my father's siblings and parents were or are LDS members. And my, I was born in California and my dad had a job at the Boeing factory as a janitor and apparently outside of Mormonism Alma is a girl's name which just seems weird to me because all the Almas I've ever known were boys yeah he saw a a time card with the name Alma Thomas on it and so he thought this must be a fellow Mormon because here's this man named Alma Hmm. and so he waited around at the time clock to introduce himself, you know, meet a fellow Mormon, and um, turns out 
he was, but he's a fundamentalist Mormon. And that's how my father got introduced to the idea of fundamentalism. And um, started looking into it, and I can make a lot of assumptions about what was appealing to him about the idea, but I can't say exactly what the conversations were or anything, but my parents decided to join with the fundamentalists and that the corporate church was apostate for giving up polygamy and the other fundamentals that they've, they've set aside. And they tried to convert his, my dad's family members, my aunts and uncles, but none of them were interested. So when I was an infant, they sold our house in California and moved us to Utah so we could be closer to the saints, you know, the true saints. And most of my memories are from the house we lived in in Taylorsville. And it was an interesting, strange childhood, I suppose. I mean, you know, whatever your life is like, you consider that normal. You, especially when you're really isolated, you have no idea what is supposed to be normal. But because we moved away from all of our, our what we call Gentile relatives, um, we really didn't know anyone in the Utah area. We went to church and things like that, but it wasn't we didn't have a lot of social interaction with a lot of other people in the church. Um, my parents didn't like us playing with the neighbors or anything, so it's pretty much just our family quite isolated. And my parents were super strict about you know, the principles and, and having us follow all the rules and, and they were extremely big on, um, physical punishment, but my mom homeschooled us until the seventh grade. I started seventh grade at Alta Academy, which is the school that was up in the mouth of Little Cottonwood Canyon there in the Salt Lake Valley, um, in Rulin Jeff's home. And that was, that was quite the shocking experience for me because it was the first time that I, uh, basically before that, the gospel, as we called it, was something that I knew in principle. You know, I sat in church and I heard them preach and we had our family Sunday schools, and we read scripture, and we did um, family home evening. We did a lot of the same type of things that the corporate Mormons do, because that was how my father was raised. But going to school was the first time that I got to experience really my religion in, in practice instead of just principle, and it was tough. I had never had friends my age. You know, I had sisters. My mom ended up having ten kids. Nine of us are girls. Wow. I always had sisters, but I, you know, I, I, my, I'm the second oldest of my dad's twenty-three kids. Oh my gosh! 
I have one older sister, and she's almost four years older than me. And then the next sister under me is almost three years younger, so there's quite an age gap. And the sisters on either side of me were my father's favorites, and I was, you know, I was never anybody special or anything. So I was super excited to go to school, and I thought I was going to have friends, finally. And when I walked into my classroom and there were 24 students and 12 of us were girls and then 12 boys, I was just absolutely thrilled that I was going to have 11 best friends because these were good saint girls. Mm. And, of course, we were all saints and, we, you know, that made us all the same and, and I was going to be welcomed and I was going to have all these friends. And, well, that was, turned out to not really be the case. Um so school was tough for me. Um, now, were you in a, a public school, or were you going to like a homeschool type situation with with the organization? So up until seventh grade, my mother just homeschooled us at home, and then when I started seventh grade, that was in the church-run private school. Okay. And Jeff's is the principal was the principal of. Oh. Um, and it, it was interesting because the first year of school there, I actually there were a few of the boys in my class that were nicer to me than the girls were, and for the most part, and some of them I felt like were closer friends than the girls were, which of course was not really acceptable. You're not supposed to, you know, you're supposed to treat the boys like dangerous snakes and stay away from them, but. Do you think that where there were equal boys and girls that maybe there was some future competition for, you know, as far as when you need to have a multiple wives type situation and there's equal number of boys to girls, then what about the how do you get an extra wife if there's not enough girls to go around was there that kind of feeling I think that that was the first time that I ever really those thoughts crossed my mind of course you know I was I think 13 12 13 so that's also the age where you start noticing boys more and and there were those thoughts that came along with it is, you know, if you're, if you've got equal boys and girls and, you know, looking through the different classes and stuff in some of the different age ranges, the boys outnumbered the girls. And so, you know, you have that thought of, well, how does that work? Because how there doesn't seem to be enough girls to go around. In some cases, it almost seemed like there wasn't enough for everybody to have one wife, much less multiple wives. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, most of the people that I had any real contact with, you know, they that were living polygamy, because I had friends that were also, you know, their fathers only had one wife at that point. But the ones that were living polygamy only had two wives, so it didn't seem as serious of a math problem at that point, you know. I think of that when I started going to school, I think Rule and Jeff had like 
five or six wives, which was, you know, like a lot. It seemed like a lot. You know, further on, then, of course, men started getting way more wives than that, and that created a, a serious math problem. But, um, well, that was the other thing I started to notice, too, though, is in that seventh grade class, for the, you know, everyone else in the in the room was related in some way or another. Whether it was, you know, some of it, it was, aunt, you know, I had a boy in my class who was the uncle to three of the girls in my class. Oh. And they were all sisters. And I had, you know, several sets of where it was, I had, you know, there was three brothers in my class. And there was another set of two brothers. And so they were all related. And they had these huge families where pretty much by the time I came along, I felt like everybody had their friend groups kind of solidified, and it was their relatives. You know, you've got people who their best friend is actually their nieces because they've got sisters and brothers that are old enough that their children are the same age as, as they are or, you know. So it's, it was kind of a hard dynamic to break into. And also, you know, we had the, the more prominent names. If you had the right last name or the right father or right grandfather, it meant a lot. And I think there was a lot of distrust for people who were new in the group. And, you know, I didn't have the right last name. I didn't know anybody. I wasn't related to anybody. So I think everybody was a little bit standoffish also. But it also was a, 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 a very different dynamic, too, to be going to, you know, we had our morning devotionals every day at school, and Warren Jeffs was the principal, so every morning he'd get up, and you had, I think it was like 45 minutes of basically church. Oh. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't any different, really, than the stuff we were being taught at home. It was just more intense. There was a lot more of it. So we were doing school in the basement of Rule and Jeff's home, which is the same building, you know, every day going into school. I walked past the door where the baptismal font was, where I got baptized when I was eight. Mm. At church in the same room that we were having our morning devotionals in, you know, so I was there almost every day of the week, most of the time. In that same room is where I got married when I was 19, and upstairs is where I had gave birth to my first three children. So that that property in that building was kind of, you know, it was a it was like home base. It was kind of the core of my life for a lot of years. And it was multifunctional, like yeah, it was the hospital, the school, a house, the baptismal font, church. Yeah, it was kind of, you know, it was everything. Interesting. So I didn't really have a lot. I mean, we, our, our Gentile relatives would come and visit sometimes, and I remember feeling jealous because they were Mormon, but they were allowed to, you know, wear the girls wore pants, they could wear swimsuits, they had all kinds of freedom, and it wasn't just the freedom of, 
of being able to dress and do things and interact. And like they went to regular school, they they had all this freedom, but also being aware that they didn't have that fear and that thing, you know, hanging over them of that they were going to have to live polygamy. Right, which would be significant, I would think. It really is. I've had people dismiss the fact that because my husband never was given a, a second wife, then they'll try to say that I never lived polygamy and that I wasn't really a polygamist. But unless you've been raised in that environment, you know, I, I can see how you might think that. But being raised in fundamentalism, the whole idea of polygamy is something that has a part in every day of your life. Something that only affects you if and when you become a sister wife. For us, we only had arranged marriages. And I can remember being excited and looking forward to getting married because I didn't feel loved at home. I didn't feel happy at home. And I, I had this deep, burning need to feel loved. And so I couldn't wait to get married because that was like, you know, I was grateful that we did arrange marriages because I never believed that any man would choose me as a wife. You know, God was going to have to tell somebody, take this girl home and make her your wife. Hmm. And that in my mind that, you know, that was God would tell some man he needed to marry me and basically God command that he had to love me and then I would be loved, which also isn't the way it really works. So, right. But, you know, I, I remember there was a, a girl that we knew that got married when she was 13. And I remember going and visiting her, and she just had a baby. And I remember I was, I was you know, maybe 11 or 12 at the time and thinking, oh, maybe I could get married. You know, I could get married at 13, and then I wouldn't have to wait as long. But I, I wonder, too, like, this is just a thought, and you can correct me, but... Um, you said that, you know, people didn't think it really counted that you were a polygamist if your husband didn't have more than one wife. I think that a lot of times people boil polygamy down to sex. And so if your husband isn't having sex with more than one wife, then you guys don't count as polygamists. But what you're kind of saying is that Polygamy isn't just a, about the lifestyle of polygamy doesn't necessarily have to include your husband having sex with another woman. It's much more, much, much more than that. It is. And, you know, so my husband, I, I honestly believe that he would have been given another wife if Warren Jeffs had not been arrested when he was. Um, because. He was, my husband was really kind of working his way up the ranks. He was becoming much more trusted and being given, you know, put on special projects and stuff. But when Warren Jeffs was arrested, then all marriages stopped. And it was, it was an interesting situation because I, I remember, I didn't realize there, had, there were no more marriages happening. It took a while. And I said something one time, and my husband was like, oh, no, there's no marriages. Prophet's in jail. How is he supposed to perform marriages? Mm -hmm. You know. And then they started in meetings telling us how 
we, you know, every one of us held the key to unlock the prison door to, to set him free. And there's a lot of guilt and shame. What are you doing, you know, to, to set our prophet free? He's perfect. He's ready. And he's just suffering in prison, waiting for all of us to do our part. And I remember struggling because I couldn't get myself to put all my heart and soul into praying that he would be released from, you know, be freed from prison because as long as he was there, I knew my husband wasn't going to walk through the door with some girl. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard to, I mean, I could pray for it, but to really put your heart and soul into something that you're asking for, that you know, is going to basically destroy your life. You just can't do it. Or I couldn't, maybe mm-hmm. some people could, I couldn't do it. And, you know, so my father, it was a big thorn in his side that he hadn't been given another wife. He felt like he was, you know, he'd been, we, at that point, when I was growing up, we just called it the work. The church was, we were, just, we were part of the work. It didn't have an official name. They incorporated and gave it the official name of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1991. And that's the year I graduated from high school up at Alpha Academy. But um, anyway, we just called it the work. But my dad would talk about how he'd been part of the work for all these years and he just couldn't figure out what was it that he wasn't doing enough that he hadn't been added upon yet. And it really just, it was really a stress for him. And I was super naive and innocent and and stupid, and I didn't, by any stretch of the imagination, comprehend really what what that all meant. I remember my mother being very sad, and I couldn't understand what her problem was, you know, when he'd talk about it. Of course, once I got married, I'd start thinking back, and I was like, that's a horrible thing for him to be saying. You know, you're not enough. What's the problem? Why can't I have more? And though that was our religion, I mean, that that was part of your salvation. You had to have at least three wives. Hmm. But at one point he went and talked to, I believe it was Rulon Jeff, because he was the prophet at the time, and he basically put the question to him. You know, I've been part of the work. I feel like I've, I've, I've paid my tithing. I'm, I'm, what is it that I'm, I'm not doing? Why is it that I haven't been added upon? And Rulon just told him that it was because he wasn't head of the household, that his wife ran things because, and I got taught this in high school, Warren just brought it up all the time. He said, if, you're, if your wife runs the checkbook, she runs the house. Your wives should have, you do not let your wives deal with the money. You're in charge. You wear the pants. You take care of the money. But the thing was that it wasn't like my mother ran the money. We never had enough money to go around. We spent a lot of time when I was growing up with one utility or the other being shut off because we couldn't pay. Hmm. The house I grew up in, we ended up, it got foreclosed on because we stopped paying the mortgage. And so I can remember mother sitting at the table with all the bills spread out and her calculator and her green stenographer's pad and a pencil trying to figure out where to shuffle money to try to keep things afloat. 
And so it wasn't like she was deciding or running the money. She had to do that because my father never was very interested and just didn't take care of things. But because of Rulin just saying that, then father came home and told her that it was her fault that he hadn't been added on and she wasn't allowed to do the bills anymore and he took it over and he treated it like she, you know, like she had done something wrong, which of course was really hard for her. But I still, I had no idea, you know, I just never had really thought about what marriage entailed or what a relationship was like until my older sister got married and she she actually had gotten to where she liked a boy and that was certainly not acceptable. So they married her off when she was 16 to keep her from being ruined or running away with this boy that she liked. Mm-hmm. And so when she was 16, she got married to one of Ruin Jeff's sons who was 21 and that was my first glimpse into, uh, you know, what married life was. And she would talk to me and tell me things, and I was terrified of getting married. Hmm. And above all, I was absolutely terrified that I was going to get told that I had to be his second wife, partly because I couldn't stand him. And, the, and, you know, the other part was that I did not want to I'd, – I'd spent – the first 13 years of my life living with her as my older sister and it didn't go well and I did not want to be stuck with her for eternity. <laughs> yeah. But, that you know, I can remember my father, he was so excited because at the time my sister got married, Rulin Jeff was not the prophet. He was an apostle. Um, Leroy Johnson was the prophet, but my father was telling me how this was so amazing. His daughter was marrying the son of an apostle. And then, of course, Rulon Jeffs became the prophet. My sister got married the year Roy Johnson died, and Rulon Jeffs became the prophet, and father felt like, you know, now he was even going more up in stature. His daughter was married to the son of a prophet. Hmm. And he was very disappointed in me when I got married. He decided that I had asked to marry the man that I married, which wasn't true, but he didn't really care. So that's a very long story, but so when I was pregnant with my second child was when my father was given his first plural wife. And what I watched my mother endure, the way he treated her and just how much it it just destroyed her. And he didn't care how she felt. But it, And all of that was kind of the whole thing. You know, like you say, it's not just about sex. The sex is absolutely, I guarantee you, that's, that's something that's key on the men's minds. But there's so much more to it than that. And even, like for myself, you know, I'd been married all these years, but and you have this feeling in the back of your mind that your husband's, isn't totally devoted to you. He's, you know, they're always looking at, you know, that someday they're going to get another wife. And you almost have this feeling like that him only having you as his wife, you almost feel like it's you getting all the attention that you're almost cheating on these other women, Mm. you know, 
because you have it have all the attention. Wow. And at the time, thinking about your husband bringing home another wife, there's just no way around feeling like that's cheating on you. Right. They would definitely feel like that to me, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, as much as you can try to convince yourself that, well, this is what God says and this is what we have to do, it doesn't take away your natural human reaction to and of jealousy and feeling cheated on, you know. And I and I watched other men when they get their young wives and it's really just quite disgusting. You see these old men with a new wife that's young enough to be their daughter or granddaughter and they're acting like Twitter pated teenagers and they you know, their older wives just get set aside or put out to pasture and I didn't want that. I, I, it's really hard to, to in your mind feel okay with that. Right. When I was a very small girl, I think everyone by now knows that I come from Heber C. Kimball and his first wife, Valate. And there were stories in my family about Valate specifically and, and how, um, when Joseph Smith told Heber C. about the um, about polygamy, Heber C. was supposedly very distraught and upset for for days and days and weeks. And eventually, Valate recognized her husband in distress and went to him and said, "You know what's the problem?" And Heber told her about the principle of polygamy and. The way the story goes in my family was that she spent, I don't know, however many days praying about it, and at some point she got a, either it was a revelation or a dream, depending on how they told the story, and she was able to see in heaven what polygamy would look like in heaven, and she was suddenly fine with it. So she goes to Heber and she says, all right, we have to do this. This is from God. And they go to Joseph Smith and they say, all right, we're ready to do it. We, we think this is from God. And Joseph Smith tells them, well, congratulations. You don't really have to give me your wife. This was just to see how faithful you were. And you guys are awesome. So I'm not going to take your wife. And then... Also, depending on how the story goes, at that point, they say, well, how about you take our daughter, Helen Marr, instead? And so Helen Marr and Joseph Smith get married, and everybody lives happily ever after. That was how we were told the story when I was little, only nobody ever told us that she was 14. Nobody ever told us that, she, you know, exactly how it was for her. And I remember being very little and hearing this story, and my grandma, both of my grandmas would tell me this story, and it was supposed to, it was supposed to make me feel better about polygamy, and um, I would be very, very little before I really even understood what marriage was even about. And I remember having the thought, there's no way that I want to share my husband when I'm in heaven, and I, I remember being very little and already 
maybe I couldn't even say the word jealousy, but I could feel that jealous feeling and just absolutely knew that that was going to be a really big struggle for me when I got to heaven. And when I would talk to my grandmas about it, they would both say, don't worry about it. Once we get there, we'll just, it'll all make sense and it'll be fine. And this exact thing was, was my earliest question about the church. And so as I hear your story, I cannot imagine being asked to live the principle here on earth. You know, I just had to wait for it once I got to heaven. But to have to have those kinds of feelings here on earth, I cannot imagine what that was like. And, you know, we were told that same story as well, only the way we were told it wasn't that Heber offered Willet, uh, I mean, offered Helen Mar. It was that Joseph said, hey, you passed the test. You guys are good. You're awesome. And, by the way, God says that I'm actually supposed to marry your daughter. And marrying your daughter, you know, if she refuses, then your whole family will go to hell. But if she accepts, then your whole family will be, um, you know, that's you instant gain your exaltation, basically. And, you know, we were told that story because we, every year we talked about Joseph Smith, and on his birthday we'd have whole big long lessons about him. And here he was, this young boy, and, you know, every year... Warren Jeffs would stand up and give us a lesson and tell all the boys that were 14 or, you know, whatever, all of you stand up. Now, can you imagine at your age being pure enough and have enough faith to, to see God face to face? And, and there was always all this focus on, you know, amazing, this young boy did that. And then there was the, but girls can do amazing things when you're super young, too, because look. Most of the prophets have, you know, married off or married, been married to these very young girls. So you need to be ready. You know, that's the, the, the most important mission. That's your entire purpose here on earth is to get married and please the men over you and pop out as many babies as you can so that you can raise this royal army to God. It's really hard to feel okay about it. And, you know, that was the other thing I there was a lot of talk about, you know, the, the wicked world and how we're living the, the pure, truest laws of God. And, of course, the devil's out there just trying to turn the world against us because that's what the devil does. And we're doing nothing wrong. I mean, this is proof that we're right, that the, the world is against us. And that, you know, the government hates us and they want to come in and they'd love to do nothing more than to come in and stop us from living polygamy and you know the early the church gave in because they didn't want to lose their property and they didn't want to lose their their money and they didn't want to have to pay taxes and and whatever and so they apostatized way back then but we are doing all the right things and so all the powers of evil are focused on us and whatever god says is right so if god says you marry this 12 year old then of course it's okay but and the government leaders are all listening to the devil and the devil is the one, you know, that's behind these these laws, like child labor laws. Those are directly influenced by the devil 
to keep us from being able to teach our children how to work hard and be good things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, I believed that. And then as I got a little bit older and I started really struggling with a lot of the ideas, like, you know, when you have no say in the matter and we were very, very firmly taught that you should never be looking around and deciding who you like or who you might want to marry. That was absolutely for God to decide. And if you even allowed those thoughts or feelings into your mind and heart, it would muddy the waters and God and the prophet couldn't get revelation to know where you belonged and then you couldn't get married. But the one thing was they never told us that we couldn't, you know, decide who we didn't want to marry. And so I'm paying attention. I've got this blacklist running in my head that, you know, if God tells me I have to marry that guy, I don't know if I can do it. Hmm. But I can also remember thinking, okay, I've been hearing this all my life. The government hates us. They want to come in and, and, and save us. And they want to come in and stop us from living polygamy. And I remember so thinking, well, so where are they? I mean, we're right here in plain sight. Why aren't they, you know, if they really feel like what's happening here is abuse, why aren't they doing anything? Why don't they care? And for me, it, it, you know, a lot of it was that I was thinking, well, it'd be awesome if they put enough pressure on that the church had to kind of go back underground and, you know, we stopped living polygamy like the corporate church does because, like what your grandmother told you, I I thought, you know, if I can make it to heaven, then we'll be perfect and it won't be a trial anymore. We'll be able to understand. So can't I just not live it here? And I'm okay with living it in heaven when it won't be hard. And I still, I mean, I've done a lot of advocacy work. I've talked to so many people and I've talked to government officials and I still, to a great degree, you know, once I got away from the church, I still had that question in my mind. It's like, do they not realize? Because, you know, according to what I was told, in the church, the government apparently realized and didn't like it. But I I just kept thinking, well, why won't they do anything? You know, and then they, they found out more. I mean, they had more evidence and everything after they did the raid down in Texas. And still, they didn't seem to be doing anything. And I can remember just feeling like, doesn't anybody care? Why won't anybody come and try to, to save us and protect us? And not necessarily that I didn't want to live my religion because I did believe in it, but it a little bit left me feeling like nobody cared. Nobody was yeah. going to come and enforce the laws. And, you know, I, I had a job at a machine shop run by the church growing up and, I was really uncomfortable with the stuff that I was expected to do, you know. We are doing all kinds of work for aerospace and medical, and they were having me falsify records and documents and and certifications, and they had me falsify financial documents so that we could get loans that we really, the company wouldn't really have um, qualified for. And that, along with, you know, the, all the teachings of you just 
we can't, you know, when things are going on, when there was abuse, when there was horrific things, there was never any real focus on that that was bad and we need to stop it. The focus was always on we have to protect not the children, not the victims, but we have to protect the good name of the church and the reputation of the of you know the the leading men. Mm-hmm. And you know you hear this, and I can remember thinking, well, you know, they're like, if people found if the Gentile world found out about this, it would make us look bad. And I remember the first time that it clicked in my mind, and I thought, if telling the, I mean, you're not saying these things aren't happening. You're admitting these terrible things are happening, and what you're asking is that I have to lie because if, you know, if the world knows the truth and that makes us look bad, doesn't that just mean we're bad? Hmm. You know? Yeah. They don't want people asking questions, right? Yeah. And it... You know, it wasn't until after I left that I that I really started realizing how much abuse that there was in my own life because like I say, it was it was normal. This was just how it was. Mm-hmm. Everybody, that's how it was for everybody, you know, and but there was a lot more sexual abuse and really awful things than you know, I knew what had gone on in my own life. And I remember thinking, boy, if the church, you know, if the brethren ever found out what what went on in our house, then there'd be trouble and we might make the church look bad. But then I found out, you know, later on after I got out and talked to a lot of people that what went on at our house was mild compared to what's common. And the fact that those horrific sexual abuse and physical abuse I think the most shocking part for me wasn't so much finding out how commonly it happened, but realizing that pretty much everybody else knew. This wasn't some secret. Everybody knew that this stuff was going on, and everybody was keeping it a secret. Mm -hmm. Nobody was stepping up and saying, we've got to protect these girls, we've got to protect these children, we've got to protect these women. And instead... When anyone did bring it up, they were the ones that were shamed. Yeah. You know, and it it really did, it just, it blew my mind. Because I, I really did spend a lot of my life in the church very isolated. And I didn't realize a lot of what was happening around me. So are you comfortable going into more detail about what happened in your house as far as sexual abuse? So... I was abused by my older sister, and that was part of me not wanting to ever have to live with her again, though, you know, by then we were, would have been grown, and and I feel like I would have had more, more power to get away from it, and it kind of just carried on down through the family, as far as I can understand, and it wasn't. From from your sister or? Yes, and I've I've talked to some of my other siblings, and basically it kind of became a theme. There was issues going on in the house all the way down through the years. Mm. Um, 
And I honestly, I think that I've blocked a lot of the memories of all of that out. And I've, I've done a lot of reading um, about abuse. I've tried, I've studied a lot of books about trauma and about the effects of abuse. And I'm in this kind of interesting place right now because I've read, I don't know if you've read, um, there's a book called Paper Dolls. Mm -hmm. And it was written by, I believe that it was, I don't know, I've read I've read a lot of books lately. I think that's what I'm thinking of. But there's several of them that were these girls when they got older, something triggered a memory. Mm-hmm. And reading the book and them describing some of the the things that they now look back on that were like clues to them that something was going on, and I can like tick all those boxes. And I honestly think that my father was molesting probably all of his children, mm. but I don't have specific memories of it, and I have not been in a very good place to try to go back and work through that, so it's something I've kind of just kept shoving down. Yeah. Um, so as far as sexual abuse, I honestly couldn't give you details. I know it went on. I don't have clear memories and some of it, you know, you, you wonder, is, did that really happen? Is that a nightmare? Mm-hmm. Was that a dream? But there was horrendous amounts of physical abuse. I don't know that I made it through a day of my life until I think my parents finally stopped physically spanking me when I was like 16. Mm-hmm. But I remember, you know, multiple times a day for the slightest issue, whether it was a belt or spoons or a, a yardstick or, you know, pieces of wood out of the, the wood shop and having welts on my legs and my bottom and never feeling, and I never really was upset with my parents. I always, it, I always internalized that there was something wrong with me. I was the one that fault. I, if I just could do better, if I would just be more obedient, you know, because my parents would say things like, it, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I remember thinking, if it did, I don't think you could keep doing it because this is really not just the, the physical pain, but the emotional pain. Yeah. And then a lot of spiritual and emotional abuse, I, you know, like I say, it took, after, it took until after I got out of the church and I started slowly trying to work through things that I started to finally comprehend that it wasn't my fault. And that I think my father has some real serious issues. I think there was a lot of projection. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, one of his favorite things to say, I mean, I can remember when I was just a little, little girl and there's always lots of threats about the destruction coming, you know, and that there'd be mobs and that would come and try to, to kill us. And, and so like, say my mother told me to clean my room. I didn't clean my room and I can still picture my father sitting there shaking his head. And he, you know, he, 
he was the real victim in the thing, according to him. But so one of his favorite threats was that how was he supposed to feel when you know if if we don't obey the things we're told to do, then even God can't protect us. Hmm. So of course he can't protect us. And how was how did I think it was going to make him feel when? the mobs broke in and he has to stand there and watch while they dragged me out into the street and raped and murdered me and my blood would then be running down the gutters mixed in with the blood of all the Gentiles that were being killed also. Mm. And Wow. You know, I don't know. It... He a lot. He had a lot of. Basically, you couldn't do anything without him turning it into that it was something sexual. You know, if you. I had a younger sister that he one time was sure that she was no longer clean because he says, you know, you can't be alone with a boy for more than like thirty seconds without having sex. And I didn't think about it at the time, but, you know, I look at it now and I'm like, according to whose standard is that, was that an admission of guilt on his part? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the influences that I was raised under, you know, and I, I started going to school and things got more intense because I had Warren Jeffs there every day with his doom and gloom teaching and I never felt like I was worthy enough and I never really had friends and then one year on my report card and I had no idea it was coming but he wrote a handwritten note to my father saying that I was the most open example of a flirt in the entire school and that if I didn't repent and change something that I wasn't going to be invited back. Oh, wow. And it was shocking to me because none of the boys in school liked me. I was very much a loner. And yet, because you know, if you're not part of the in crowd and you're just kind of sitting quietly on the sidelines, I could have told you any day of the week who did like who and about people I caught, you know, alone in dark classrooms and stuff and there were definitely people who were involved in relationships. And I thought it was interesting that I guess if you had the right last name that it, you were invisible to Mr. Jeff. And yet somehow I was seen as this terrible person. And we, you know, we've been told that your father was your connection to God because he was your priesthood head. And, you know, God trusts the prophet, and the prophet trusts your father, and so you need to have the trust of your father so that if the prophet asks you, do you trust this son or daughter, and if your father says yes, then the prophet, because he trusts him and God trusts the prophet, then you will be trusted and you'll be able to be used, and you'll be able to get married, you'll be able to have all these things. And so if your father doesn't trust you, basically there's no hope for you because how can God trust you if even your father doesn't? Hmm. So, and you know, and Warren Jeff was 
Rulon Jeff's right-hand man. He was, you know, talked about as the greatest teacher that there was. And, you know, so I'm trying to tell my father, because I was in big trouble, trying to tell him, I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't flirt with anybody. The boys don't even like me. I just go to school. And he, and so he says, are you calling Mr. Jeff a liar? And I was like, well, I don't know, I guess, because he says I'm flirting, I'm not. <laughs> but, and I'm sure that that played a big part in it, but my father told me that he, he sat me down one day, he came down in my room and had me lay on my bed with him, and he said that he knew that I was no longer queen. He knew, he didn't know how many men I had had sex with. He didn't know what men I had or how far I had gone, but he knew that I was no longer clean and no longer a virgin, and he just needed me to confess so that we could start on that road of repentance, because otherwise, what hope was there for me? And I... I know, and I and I told him I've never even held hands with a boy, but his priest had told him that that was the case, and I had Warren Jeff saying I was the biggest example of a flirt, and so that was the year that I attempted suicide hmm. because I just I felt like there was no hope, you know, if if Mr. Jeff was willing to to lie about me and say that I was immoral and my father didn't trust me and you know according to the pattern I'd been taught that meant the prophet wouldn't trust me so what good was did any of this do and I tried telling my father and he just didn't trust me I could still see him hanging his head shaking his head couldn't understand why on top of being such a whore that I would also lie about it why wouldn't I just confess so that he could help me repent and I actually considered lying and making up some stories because I thought maybe that would help and then I got to the point of thinking well if I'm gonna get punished and go to hell for being immoral maybe I should at least have the fun <laughs> yeah I'm gonna find some way and then I'll have some at least that way I wouldn't be lying I can confess of something right <laughs> and I just I couldn't I don't know I I just kept sinking deeper into this, this terrible depression. And so one day I, I thought, you know, my parents, I'm ashamed to my parents. I'm this huge stress to them. And I honestly believed that the best thing, the most charitable thing I could do if I was that hopeless was to just end it. And then they wouldn't have to be embarrassed. They wouldn't have to deal with me. I'd be out of the way. And then, you know, I've, I've read since then about how if you know someone who seems depressed or something and then it seems like they have this quick change where they all of a sudden seem like they're okay and they're happy, but that's actually kind of a red flag because it probably means they've made a decision. Mm-hmm. And that was how it was for me because I, I felt like this and I thought, this is the answer. And I prayed and I got this feeling of, yep, this is really the answer. And so I thought that was God telling me that this is what I should do. Mm -hmm. And 
actually, it was really tough because I, I felt like this was what I was supposed to do. I felt like God understood. And I was like, I'm just going to do this and God can sort it all out in the next life because I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I took a bunch of pills and said my prayers, which all seemed kind of strange, you know. We'd been taught that suicide was the worst sin you could commit. But then I woke up in the morning and I thought, I can't even do that right. There's absolutely no hope for me. And now I have to face the world knowing that I tried and I couldn't even do that right. And basically I'm just ruined and, and I guess I'll just figure out how to live out the rest of my life until the destruction's hit because I'm for sure going to die then. How old were you at this point? I was 18. I'm sorry. Yes, you know, I, I've had a couple of other times in life when I seriously considered it, but now I've gotten to the point where I can recognize when I'm going down that dark road, and I've so far been able to be okay and, and pull myself back, stop myself. But it is a scary thing. At one point when we were still in the church, I was pregnant. So I have six kids. I've had six full-term pregnancies. And I've had more miscarriages. I just stopped counting. I've had so many miscarriages. You know, a lot of them were super early on. Some of them were not as early on. And I, I had a miscarriage. We were living in Las Vegas. We were supposed to be in hiding. We weren't supposed to let the Gentiles realized that the polygamists were living in Las Vegas and we weren't supposed to go out. So we didn't feel like we should go like to the the doctors or the hospital unless you absolutely had to. But I had, it was in the middle of a really, really, really hard time. And I'd say it was the closest I ever felt to actually living polygamy because my husband had been put in charge of his father's family when his father got sick and then um, his father passed away. And he put a lot of, of time and effort into dealing with his father's young wife. It felt like cheating to me. He always had time to talk to her. Anyway, it was a very dark, dark place in my life. So I had this miscarriage and I hemorrhaged and hemorrhaged and hemorrhaged and then it finally, it finally stopped right when we were about to go to the hospital. But it took, we didn't, you know, we didn't go do anything. And so it took me weeks of, I could just feel myself sinking into this dark hole and my kids would come in and it's like I could hear them from so far away and they'd slowly get, and I had to just force, I had to work so hard to, to wake up. And I remember thinking that I knew that all I had to do was stop fighting so hard to stay alive and I could just slip away and no one would know. wouldn't really be suicide. And yeah, God would know, but at that point I didn't care. I didn't care if he sent me to hell. It couldn't be any worse than what I felt like my life was at the time. Then I started to realize that if, you know, the reality was if I was to die, then most likely what they would do is load my kids up and send them back to Short Creek to live with other woman that I absolutely despised and I decided that there was no way I was going to die and and leave my ch- children to not be taken care of. 
polygamy is hard. It is horrific. It is abusive. It is inherently damaging, really, to everyone involved, but especially to women and girls and children. And the the amount of sexual abuse, especially, that goes on in these in these big families, is immeasurable and horrific. And you know, as I've as I've talked to people and and hear multiple personal stories from people about the same man, so none of them know that the other people are talking to me. And you hear the same type of story, you just can't deny that it's real mm-hmm. and these are, these are people that were held up as pillars of the community and still they there's no justice nobody's actually stopping them they're still out there probably molesting and, and, and hurting people I look at what my what it did to my mother I look at how overnight the way my father treated her changed I look at how many women really just get set aside, put out to pasture, whatever you want to call it. You know, my mother became really nothing more than a live-in servant. My father didn't sleep with her anymore. It, you know, even with that, it's, it's not about the sex. I mean, the, the sex end of things is important, and it is critical, and, you know, when he married his when father married his second wife, their bedrooms were across the hall from each other, and my mother told me how hard it was to lay in bed at night and hear them next door making all kinds of noise. And yet, and they'd stay up all night talking and laughing and having sex, and then he'd come sleep in her room, and she'd want to talk to him, and he's like, oh, I'm so tired, I just need to sleep. And then he just stopped sleeping with her entirely. And it's not just about, like I said, it's not just about having a sexual relationship. It's about that, you know, for my mother, she never had any time with him alone. There was never a time when she could just talk to him. There was no time spent together at all. She she stopped feeling like she was really even a wife. She was just, you know, the, the person that, did the laundry and did the dishes and took care of kids. And because we didn't know other people and my mother had 10 children, she never really got to go anywhere. She, you know, she was stuck at home with all these kids. And so, you know, when father married his second wife and she started having kids, father still, father took her everywhere his second wife everywhere. Mother still never got a chance to go anywhere. Mm. And at one point I was talking to her and and she's like, yeah, father's going wherever. And and I said, so when do you ever get a chance to go? And she says, well, I asked him about it the other day and he said that it's unfair to ask this other wife to watch her children And if she feels like she needs a break, then she's doing something wrong. You're supposed to find joy in your motherhood. And and she should love her children enough to not feel like she wanted to get away from them. And and then, of course, years later, 
when father still is only taking his young wives anywhere and mother still never got to go anywhere, I brought it up again. And she says, well, you know, I, I asked, but father said, you know, these, these other women, they, they need a break sometimes. And aren't these all my children? And you should love all the children the same. And you should feel a, pri a privilege that you can take care of their children so that they can get a break. And it was just like, Basically, you can't win. Mm -hmm. And if you're a favorite or you're favored in some way, you know, not to mention that by it didn't take long after Father got another wife before he had the last I, I knew, then his third wife was the one actually running the money at his house. But he would still get up in church and tell this faith-promoting story about how he'd gone to the prophet and got told that his wife was in charge, and that's why he didn't have more wives. And he'd tell this story with my mother sitting there. I mean, mm. everybody knows who his first wife is. Right. And how, you know, this is a warning to all you young boys out there and all you men. Don't you let your wife run your checkbook. And at the same time, I knew he was letting his third wife run his checkbook while he shamed his first wife publicly in church. The gaslighting is, it's just insane. Gaslighting, manipulation, shame, guilt. What, where is the joy in any of that? Well, and you know, there, there just, there was no joy. I remember at one point when I was at like one of the lowest points in my life before we left the church. And I tried to not let my kids see how much I was struggling and how much I just, I was dying inside. And so there was times when my only place to get away was I'd go in the bathroom and I'd cry my eyes out and then, you know, wash my face and come back out and here we were keeping sweet. Life is good. No worries. And I remember one time I, I was just sobbing in the bathroom, sobbing and praying and asking for God to give me strength to endure living my religion <clears throat> and I I got up to wash my face and I looked in the mirror and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought oh my word when I looked in the mirror I saw my mother looking back at me I was like this I now understand that look in her eyes all those years when I was growing up she was absolutely overwhelmed and devastated and sad and it was really, and I realized that I was doing the same disservice to my daughter and other girls and my boys and everyone around me. You know, we were taught that sacrifice and obedience brings the blessings of heaven. And if you're doing the right things, then that's where the happiness, true happiness is found in obedience. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, my mother would would tell me, oh, she's happy. She's living the gospel and she's happy. But the especially for the women, it's like their smile never went past their lips. They had this, this permanent smile on their face, but their eyes never looked happy. Yeah. yeah. And so it was the same for me. All the women that I'd grown up around would say publicly, oh, I'm so happy and I'm so thrilled that my husband was added upon and I love my sister wives and I love polygamy and I love the gospel and I'm happy and 
so in your mind, you're looking at it, you're going, okay, it all, it checks all the boxes. They're living the way we've been taught we're supposed to. So they're being obedient and they say they're happy. So that, you know, that is what it is. And then when you get older and you, you know, for myself, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm following all the rules. I'm doing all the things. I've been obedient. This is where I'm at. Sure enough, this must be happiness because God doesn't lie. And I'm doing all the things, so this must be happiness. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, sure enough, I look just like all the other women when they said they were happy and they loved polygamy. And all this pain I feel in my heart, something I have to keep hidden because I don't feel like it's right. And you certainly can't talk about it. Right. It was about a year after we left, got out of the church. I walked out one day. It took me that long before I dared wear pants. But I, and I, before I really dared go outside the house in Gentile clothes. But I put, I was wearing some, I think I was actually wearing a skirt, like a shorter skirt and a t-shirt that had a, quite a wide scoop neck. And I, our mailbox was down at the entry to the neighborhood. And I decided I was going to walk down and check the mail. And it was in the spring. And everything was just coming to life down there in southern Utah. And I walked out of the house. And the cool breeze and the sun touched part, you know. It was, the sun was hitting me in places the sun had never seen before. Mm. Because, you know, I wasn't wearing my long underwear and my, and my slips and my long sleeve dresses and everything else. And I thought, you know what, we're going to be okay. Because it had been a rough a rough go for that first year. First finding out after we left the church what what Warren Jeffs had really been doing and, and what he'd been up to. Coming to realize that all these men that I had trusted and that I had allowed to tell me what to do in my life were really just horrible, abusive people. And then feeling so alone because, you know, you went from this community of 10,000 people that you seriously considered your family to overnight having nobody. Mm -hmm. All of, all of everybody that had, and everything that had been part of my life was gone. As my husband and I and our six kids alone facing the Gentile world, we didn't, it was amazing how much, even of a language barrier there was. You know, sure, we spoke English, but a lot of the, the terminology we used and a lot of the things that we knew had a different meaning than they did to the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, I think there's, like, even in southern Utah, there's an element of that anyway. Um, I remember when I moved to Panguitch, I couldn't understand what anyone was saying, even though everyone was speaking English. The, yeah. Just the terminology was so different. I didn't know what people were saying. But did you have to move out of the community, or were you still living in your same house when when you guys left the church? We moved out because. So I can you tell yeah. us about that? Like, yeah, what was I, the catalyst for you guys to leave, and how did you how did you go about it? So I. We grew up, my husband and I both grew up in the Salt Lake Valley. And then in 2001, 
we were told that God said that the Olympics were going to actually bring the great destructions and that they were trucking in, you know, all kinds of vices and prostitutes and stuff. And so that was going to be the final straw because the Lord, you know, that was supposed to be our sacred land. And so we had to all get out of the valley before the Olympics came in 2002. So we all moved to Colorado City, Short Creek area. We moved in December of 2001. And so, like for us, we owned a house. We sold our house. And then you move in and they, you know, now living down there, the church had even more control because it was all UEP property, all owned by the church. And so you were assigned where to live. And we were moved into the basement of one of my husband's sister's homes. Anyway, we moved around a little bit. And then when Warren got caught, and well, it was before Warren got caught and put in prison, but they moved the company my husband worked for to Las Vegas. And then they moved our family to Las Vegas, and we were we lived in hiding there for about five years, and then we moved back to Colorado City, and that was in the middle of they, you know, we'd been taught about the United Order all of our lives that someday that would come to where we actually were living the United Order, where all things were being common, and you'd give everything to the church, and then the church would give you back what you needed, and. And there's a lot of talk about it, and, you know, they they talked about how it was going to be the most wonderful thing because it would make it to where everybody would have their needs taken care of. And we had been so poor our entire lives, and we'd given everything to the church, you know. And, yeah, I, you know, we struggled. My husband worked for a church company, and they'd hardly pay him anything. And all of your time was was devoted to church projects and giving your all. And I thought, this is going to be amazing. Like, you know, I might not have to wait till heaven to actually get some benefit from all that we've given to the church. But instead, it actually ends up just being another way of shuffling everything upward, and we had even less. But then, so we started doing the kind of the physical end of it, where you were supposed to write a list of everything you owned and let the church know what you owned. And then they they had everybody write letter confession letters. You were supposed to write this letter out telling every bad thing you'd ever done in your life. And I remember it was really a struggle because I felt like, yeah, there were things that I, mistakes I had made, sins I had committed, but a lot of it is like I felt like I had worked hard and me and God were good, you know. I felt like I had repented of it and I didn't like the idea of having to write out basically this blacklist of every bad thing I'd ever done on paper because I trusted our prophet, of course, but he was in prison and I didn't necessarily trust a lot of the men at the top. And it's really hard to just put everything on paper and... and and then you lose custody of it, and you don't know who's going to get it, who's going to read it. Mm-hmm. We did it anyway. We all wrote our confession letters and turned them in, and and then they 
let us know that by the by December 31st of 2011, everybody had to get through the judgment process where you would go and sit in front of Bishop and his counselors, and they, you know, we were told that 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 they sat in the position of representatives of God to us, judging for God, by God. And you'd go in and have your little interview, and then God would reveal whether you were worthy or unworthy to be in the United Order. And if you got accepted into United Order, if you were pure enough for that, then you were still a part of the church, but you also had to do... We already had rebaptisms once, but you'd have to get baptized again and go through some ordinances to become part of the United Order. And we didn't get called for to go to our interviews until the day of December 31st of 2011. And apparently they hadn't got through a lot of people because we went to the big meeting house there in Colorado City and all the little side rooms along the one side of the building were just full of people and we'd slowly file through and move up through one room and then go to the next room. And it was a day-long process. We got there early, fairly early in the morning and we finally got our turn to go into Lyle Jeff's office around 6 in the evening, I think. And, you know, that whole time I was just praying because we had been praying, my husband and I, we had talked about everything and we felt like that God had given us a testimony that we were worthy and that everything was going to be okay. When it's finally your turn, you get there and they had to all line up, you know, by family. They lined up with any priesthood holders first in order of age and then mothers in order of age and then any other children in order of age after that so our son our two sons went first so my husband and then the two boys and then me and then the other kids and they they gave us instructions they said you walk through the door there's a post you shake hands with So Lyle's counselors were John M. Barlow and my father, Vaughn Taylor. So you shake hands with Uncle Vaughn and Uncle John, and then you go over to the desk. Lyle's sitting at, Lyle Jeff is sitting at his desk, and there's a Post-it note on the floor. Shake hands, walk over, stand on the Post-it note, shake hands with Brother Lyle, and don't let go of his hand and keep eye contact. He's going to ask you three questions, and then... Um, and then you'll be done, and you go out the other end of the office. And so, like, my husband would walk through that process with each of the boys, and you'd go through the office, out through the hall, and then they'd sit in the meeting hall, and then he came back around. So he went, you know, your priesthood head went through with each person. And it was super weird. So my father was one of the judges, and after my two boys had gone in, um, So I'm standing there waiting at the door, and the door opens, and my father pokes his head out, and he says, he says, hey, and I, and so I was like, hi, and he says, you're next, and I remember thinking, it was just weird. To me, it felt like he was kind of making a mockery of the whole thing, and it made me super nervous, but they, in the 
in the rooms where you were going through, they were telling us this is the process and they're going to ask you these three questions. And I cannot remember what the three questions were, but I remember it, it put me at ease because I thought I can easily honestly answer yes to all of these questions. It was, you know, something along the lines of, have you forsaken all Gentile entertainment? Have you first, you know, Simple, you know, basically simple things that I knew that it wasn't anything that I had to sit there and go, I don't know, am I am I innocent of that or not? Do you say your prayers all the time? And at that point, they had us saying, gathering up, we had prayers on the hour every day. You had to gather up the whole family, say prayers every hour through the day. So when I got in the room, it was the strangest thing because I don't know that I've ever walked into a room where it felt more dark and they didn't have I mean it wasn't very it was quite dimly lit and they had like a light that shone right down onto Lyle so the rest of the room was in quite a bit of shadow but it wasn't just about the lighting it just felt evil to me which kind of threw me off because this is supposed to be the representatives of God and why do I feel like it's a, it's dark does that mean there's something wrong with me but I walked in, shook hands with my father, shook hands with John, walked over, stepped on the sticky note, shook hands with Lyle, held on, kept eye contact, and he didn't, and the questions he asked were very different questions, which really kind of threw me off, and it, they were much on much more of a sexual nature, if I had kept myself sexually pure in my relationship with my husband that's kind of a wide open question to ask so you you know like I don't know what that what would what was this for again to to become part of the to become a member of the united order if you were pure enough to take you know not be just a common member of the church but be in this higher order of being in the United Order. Okay. But, okay, so we all get through, and they're like, okay, you'll get a phone call. And we... It took a while. I can't remember, maybe an hour. And then my husband's phone rang, and person on the other end said, this is the bishop's office. Your daughter... She was 18 at the time. And these two of your boys have been found worthy. And the bishop, was, the bishop's office would like to talk to your daughter. And he's like, if I remember right, he told them she wasn't available right then, though she was in the car, but he was a little bit freaked out. And we drove home and let told all the kids to go in the house. And we sat there and I was like, but, but what about us? He's like, we're not worthy. And I was like, did they say we aren't worthy? And he says, no, but they said these three kids are worthy. And if they didn't say that we are, that means that we're not. And I was just so blown away because I knew that I hadn't done anything to not be worthy. But in the immediate issue we had was what were we going to do? about our kids. 
So we decided to go ahead and let our daughter talk to the bishop's office. And they told her to bring her two brothers and come up to the to where they're doing the endowments, the not the endowments, the uh, ordinances. They were going to get rebaptized, and we couldn't go with them. It was just those three kids. And at midnight that night, if you weren't in the United Order, then that meant that you, for men, for my husband, that meant he lost priesthood. And that meant that any of our ordinances or anything that we had done were just automatically undone. So that meant that at midnight, he and I were no longer married in the eyes of God, you know. Whoa, what? Yeah, so we had told our kids, you know, we've been praying about it, and we know, you know, Heavenly Father gave us this testimony that everything's going to be all right, that we're all going to, we're going to be okay, we're going to be good. And I, you know, it's, looking back, it's really, it's a tough thing, because on the one hand, I feel like I was completely 100% full-on believer and at the same time, I didn't trust half the men that were involved at the higher level, you know. I was actually very terrified because we'd been told, you know, especially like once you're in the United Order, that part of the agreement there if you get rebaptized is that your children no longer belong to you. And, you know, we never really thought our children belonged to us. You know, there's all the, always the idea that these are God's children. But it was just kind of the idea, oh, yeah, 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 these are God's children, but I'm still their mom, you know, they're still my kids. And so I was absolutely terrified that my kids were going to go in one door and that my father was going to take them out a different door and we'd never see them again. You know, by this point, they had been, people disappeared all the time. Somebody would be found worthy and they'd disappear and you didn't know where they went and they couldn't contact their family. Children, there'd be a child from this family or mother from that family. People have been disappearing. And these are the worthy people disappearing. Yes, the worthy people would disappear and go to Zion, wherever that was that they were getting taken to. Uh-huh. And I was terrified that my father was going to take my kids. And they disappear. So my husband went with them. He drove them up there and he sat out in the van while they went in and waited for them. And this is, you know, this is December 31st. It's cold. I gathered up their extra clothes that they would need and everything and and sent them on their way. And I was sitting at home watching the time tick. You know, we had this, this idea that somebody, we were going to get a phone call. You know, oh, you're worthy, everything's good, whatever. And my, one of my sons that was found unworthy was just absolutely devastated over it. He couldn't understand. He was 14 at the time. But I put the younger, the younger kids to bed and my son and I were sitting up together and he was having a hard time staying awake. And I told him, he's 
I told him that I would let him know if anybody called and that I would wake him up at midnight one way or the other and that he should go to sleep. So he went down the hall and fell asleep and midnight came. There was no phone call and, you know, my husband wasn't even home and it was like the clock struck midnight and I'm no longer married. We were... Well, we got instructions the next day on what all of that meant, but my son, I thought, I'm not going to wake him up. This, he doesn't need to deal with this, And but he had set an alarm, and it woke him up, and he came staggering back to my room, and he's like, did we get a phone call? And I said, no, I haven't heard anything, and he just started sobbing, and I mean, he's a big boy. He's taller than me, and just kind of fell into me. And he was just sobbing. He says, Mother, there's something wrong. This isn't right. I feel like the devil's out to get us. Mm -hmm. And he and I sat and cried together. And eventually, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, my husband my kids got done. My husband brought them home. And it was just like, I didn't feel like I'd ever done anything to, to... to deserve to be found unworthy. So the next day, meetings split. And if you were found worthy, then you got to go to meeting at the meeting house at the regular time as usual. If you weren't, then you had to go to the 11 o'clock sinners meeting. The place where they had those meetings was just kitty corner from the house we were living in. And I told I told my husband I didn't feel good. Honestly, I, I was too embarrassed. I thought, everybody's going to watch me walk across the road, and they're all going to be looking out their windows and go, oh, sure enough, Brenda's wicked. She didn't make it in. Mm-hmm. But I was not prepared to see the sheer number of people. I, I was watching out the window, and I thought, did anybody make it in? Because And I was seeing the people show up, and I thought, all the people that I thought the most of are here. I was actually in really good company not being worthy. And I started finding out the people that had been found worthy, and I thought it just felt backward. Some of the nastiest people that I'd ever known were worthy, and the best people weren't. And Except for you had a couple of kids. Well, that... you know, the kids, yeah. But I, I mean, looking more at, like, adults, as far as adults went. And with my kids, it was like, my oldest son is disabled, so I think that was an easy thing for them to say. My other son was nine. He is just a little kid. And then my daughter was 18, and she was the one that I was terrified for because I didn't trust the men there. Mm -hmm. And she was now going to be going to meetings, they all were, where they were not allowed to tell me anything that was that was said or done there. I wasn't worthy to know the stuff that she was was part of anymore. And that was part of why, you know, the other thing I told my husband, I was like, I want to talk to our daughter before we send her off to meeting because I feel like I need to, to prepare her. And, and I sat her down and I said, now I, I am only, I'm going to assume a lot of what you got told last night when you were getting baptized and stuff. I says, I imagine they told you that you're not allowed to tell me. 
anything that's said or done, she's like, yeah, that's what they said. And you're not, you know, as they, they probably told you. Anyway, I went through these things and she was just amazed. Like, how did you know? I was like, I know how this, I know how all this stuff works. I says, but I had spent my life as a mom taking my kids to church with me and I would sit with them and make sure that they behaved. And then, you know, after church was over, I would talk to them about what was said and what I felt like it meant and how I felt like it applied. And now I wasn't going to be there to help them understand. So I told her I needed her to watch her brothers and make sure they were safe and help them understand and not let anything happen to them. And I told her, I said, I know that they've told you that the stuff that you're going to hear is sacred, and so you can't tell me because I'm not worthy. And she says, yeah, that's what they said. And I says, but I need you. I says, I need you because I can't be there. I need you to be super prayerful the whole time before you go to church, while you're in meetings and everything. And what you need to remember is that anything that's sacred should feel peaceful and if there if anybody no matter who it is any man tells you that you should do this and that God said or whatever and if you don't feel peaceful about it then it's not sacred because it you know wrong things make you feel that way and I was trying to not basically trying to not accuse these good priesthood men who were worthy to be in the United Order and at the same time, I honestly didn't trust them. I, I was afraid that, you know, any man could come up to her then and say, God said that I should do this, and you're supposed to come with me, and you can't tell your parents. And I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And it really started to tear our family apart because they had all these assignments that she couldn't tell me what it was or what was going on, but... She kind of used it to her advantage in some ways, so I asked her to tell her I needed her to come help me with something. Like, oh, well, I have reading assignments that Uncle Lyle said I have to do. Hmm. And I couldn't ask her what it was. I couldn't check, you know. And they didn't have family class with us anymore. Amanda, my daughter, would take those other boys, and she had assignments she was supposed to read to them and check in and let the church know. We weren't supposed to know what they were reading, so we were having separate family classes, separate family prayers. She, They had meetings to go to that we weren't allowed to go to. We would go to our meeting in the morning and get home, and I'd get them ready, and she'd take them. And, you know, we used to have, like, two-hour church, and there were days when, and I'd try to have dinner ready, and there were days when it just went on and on and on, and we'd, actually go for a drive because we were terrified that one of these days we'd go over to the meeting house and all the cars would be gone because all the worthy people just left. Mm. But they what had was the purpose? Six hours. What? What was the purpose of, of all of this for, for them? Like, what were they trying to achieve by separating families and having separate meetings and stuff? I think that it was you know, at the time, of course, they said it was they were separating the, the more worthy from the less worthy because time was so short 
and God needed a more perfectly obedient people. And so if you couldn't fit into that mold, then you weren't getting completely cast off. You still had the chance to repent. But, well, the way they put it was God couldn't allow those of us who were unworthy to corrupt his more pure members. But now that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm distanced away from it, it was really, I think, a lot about just chaos and destroying bonds between people. Yeah. And all for the purpose of, you know, one thing that I think that the, that the confession letters did, I, well, I think they served two purposes. One, it gave them all kinds of information that they could then use basically as blackmail. If you really confess that you did these things, they could then say, you know, if you don't want us to, to turn you over to the police or whatever, it gave them power to get you to do anything they wanted. And number two, I really feel like they use that as ways as a way of figuring out who, basically the kind of a character you had, and I feel like that's why so many of the adults, where the adults were concerned, so many of them that were found worthy, I think there was a degree of this guy, because of the things he has done, it's not just that we can hold power over him, kind of like blackmail, but he's already shown that he's not going, he'll be okay with doing things that some of these other people I don't think are. Mm-hmm. You know, like some of the the sexual abuse and people being willing to, to hand over their 12-year-old daughters as, you know, hand, it, hand them over as a wife or whatever. But so we were in our, in the very beginning then, we were told, you know, your marriage is no longer valid. So, of course, no sex, but even all the contacts that you were allowed to have, I mean, we still lived in the same house. At that point, my husband was still working in Vegas, so that made it a little easier because all week he wasn't home. And we could still talk on the phone, but you could only shake hands. And then they came out with, after a little while, that more than a three-second handshake was adultery because apparently... Like, for us, we stopped sleeping in the same bed, but we didn't have enough room in our house for us to have, like, separate bedrooms. So when he was home on the weekends, we would take turns. We had a sleeping bag. We'd set it up on the floor. One of us would sleep in the bed, and the other one would sleep on the floor. We were still in the same room. We would not close our door so that if they questioned our kids, then there would never be a time when our kids would be like, I don't know, they were in the room with the door closed, basically we weren't going to allow there to be any appearance of evil. We never went anywhere alone together. We never shut our bedroom door. Um, all of that kind of stuff. But because we were allowed to shake hands at first, we would go to bed and reach off the side of the bed and we would hold hands and fall asleep that way. But then, you know, apparently we weren't the only ones because then they clarified that more than three seconds was adultery. And all of that was super hard to begin with. 
But then one day, one Sunday, my kids that were in the United Order came home after meeting, and I could just tell there was something wrong. They were all, they couldn't, they wouldn't eat. They all sat there looking like their world had fallen in on them. And I thought, you know, I knew my kids enough to know there's, there's something going on. So I went up to my daughter's room and I, and I told her, remember how I told you that if something feels bad, it's not sacred. I said, so if there's, if something got said that make, that made you feel really bad, it's not sacred. So that means you can tell me. And she, she finally broke down and told me, she says, we're not going to be allowed to live with you anymore. Um, so the, Uncle Lyle said that, that Heavenly Father said that there has to be a greater separation and worthy people can no longer live with unworthy people. So they're going to take us away and we'll have to live with someone else. There was just no way that I was going to let anybody take my kids away. So it gave me a week, though, because they told all the United Order people that in their afternoon meeting, and they told them that they would be telling the unworthy people at the 11 o'clock sinners meeting the next week. So during that week, I talked to my husband and... You know, we spent hours every night on the phone trying to figure out what are we going to do. And I was really glad that we were on the same page and that we agreed that there was just no way that we were going to let anybody take our kids from us because the people that we assumed, after watching what was going on, that we assumed where they would put our kids were not people that I would ever trust with my kids. Not to mention the fact that we were their parents. So by the time the next week came along, we had made the decision that no matter what happened, we were not handing over our kids to anyone. But I sat through that meeting, and I'll never forget listening to Lyle talk, and my father also talked. And the so my father led the meeting, and he opened up the meeting by we saying, um, up awake ye defenders of Zion. And in that song, it talks about um, how the, the foes at the door of your home and will we bear with oppression forever? Will we submit to the foe? And I can't remember all the words, but I remember as I we were singing it and saying no, I was like, to me it felt like, the foe was right there in the church. It was the people trying to take my children away from me. And then Lyle got up and let us know that there been, the Lord had given a decree that worthy, he could no longer risk his worthy children being corrupted by the unworthy. And so there was going to be a greater separation. And that um, and he was just, he was so glib about the whole thing. He acted like he was really quite enjoying it. He, he said, this is going to be the biggest game of fruit basket upset ever. And then he chuckled 
and he said, you know, we've got to figure out where people are going to go. We need to get this done quickly and efficiently so we can get the flow of money going again. Hmm. And if for fathers who are worthy, you can have some say and suggestions in where your unworthy wives and children get placed. For fathers who are not worthy, the church will decide and let you know where your wives and unworthy wives or where your worthy wives and children will go. And he gave instructions for any of the men who had unworthy wives and children that they needed to figure out how to get them jobs because not one cent of money that belonged to a worthy person could go to the care or feeding or anything of unworthy people. And I will never forget one of the another change that came with the split between the UO and the United Order and the non worthy people was all the meetings were split by men and women. You no longer sat together. Men sat in the front of all the rooms, women sat in the back of the rooms or in separate rooms because that way, because it, it was too tempting and too evil for men to watch women walk in and out. And so the men were in the front so that they wouldn't have to be tempted by the evil women. They sat in the back. Which also meant that my daughter could not sit with my sons in her meetings anymore. And they took them and made them sit with a different family. But I was sitting in a room, in a side room full of women and... I can still remember the sounds of women just sobbing and because they 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 knew that they had to give up their kids and the only way that I survived the meeting was that I knew that I had already decided there was no way so I I walked out of the meeting and walked past these little groups of women that were all leaning on each other and just sobbing and crying. And I can still see them in my mind, and I can still hear the sound of them crying because their children were being taken away. And it was, it was absolutely insane. You know, there was this, constant mixing around as they move people out of houses into other houses and in my father's house my his second wife's oldest son was found unworthy so he wasn't allowed to eat any of the food so he had to get a job and have his own food he wasn't allowed to eat with the family in the kitchen. And yet his mother would go in his room and steal his food out of his closet. And I didn't find out until later that my mother had been found unworthy. And they still had her make all the meals. She would go out and do all the cooking and then had to leave because she wasn't allowed to eat their food. But then wow. she would have to do up the dishes and everything mm. from the but 
we started figuring out what we were going to do, and it was we knew that if anyone found out that we were questioning that they would try to do anything they could, they would probably try to sneak our children away. And I was really worried about what was going to happen. And my boys that were going to these United Order meetings, it was just, I was watching them decline. They were stressed and they were unhappy. And yet they never said a word. They wouldn't tell me what went on. I wasn't going to ask them because I knew that they'd get questioned. I couldn't risk having the church leaders ask them and have them say, yeah, our mother asks us what gets fed because then they would be even quicker to try to take them away. And we got sick. It was like colds or something. And I was like, okay, this is perfect excuse because I had never sent, I'd never send my kids to church if we were sick, unlike most of the other people. But, but my husband's sister had started watching for my kids and trying to get them to sit with their family. And she called me one day and she says, I haven't seen your kids at, at meetings. I'm really concerned about their salvation. And I told mm-hmm. her, well, we've been sick, so they're not going to come. And then my daughter stopped sitting with them because we were really concerned about what they might try to do. But the sister kept texting and calling and, and, and I the one day she she texts me and she says, so I'm just wondering if we're going to have the privilege of seeing your kids in, in church this Sunday. We've been missing them. I've noticed they haven't been coming to church. And I told her that our daughter had been going to church. She just was sitting in a side room instead of with their family, which was true. And but the, my boys have been sick and I don't send them when they're sick. And then she texted me and says, well, I just drove past your house a while ago and I saw them out in the orchard playing. They don't look sick to me. And I just thought they're surveilling us, you know. They've got people driving by, checking on us, and they're paying attention to if my kids are in church or not. And it was just absolutely, you felt like a prisoner, And I knew that there were cameras all around town. And I had always thought that that was to keep an eye on the outsiders coming in. And then I started to slowly realize that I think it was actually so they could keep an eye on us. Mm -hmm. You would go out of town and go into St. George to do your shopping or hurricane. And all along the road leading from Short Creek out to hurricane, you would pass. There would be men from the church parked on the side of the road and cars watching and they'd be they'd be parked in a parking lot on the side of the road so if you left the house you had to basically have a you know you had to be able to justify where you were going because they knew you left and they were watching and so we're living in a house that was a duplex and we knew that if anybody found out that we were questioning that, number one, they'd try to get our kids away. Number two, they would try to kick us out of the house. Number three, they would fire my husband from his job. And 
basically we had almost nothing to our name. And so we started trying to quietly figure things out. We weren't allowed to use the internet, so my husband borrowed an air card from somebody and would and let me have it so that we could we were trying to look up houses for rent that we could move to and trying to figure things out, but we couldn't let anyone know we were using the internet. Hmm. And my son and I wasn't allowed to go anywhere alone. I had to have priesthood with me, so we would go and drive past these houses to see if it looked like they would work. And I would tell everybody that we, we had to run to the store. So my son and I ran to Walmart, quote unquote, a lot. <laughs> and you'd, you'd watch for all the men along the sides of the road and then you'd take a longer route and get to where you felt like nobody, you know, you, you looked unsuspicious. You stop at the store, you get a few things, you go to another store, get a few things and then take a, a longer route to get around and then put the address in your map so that you could go drive past these houses that were for rent so that you wouldn't get caught and get found out. And for the first time really in his life, my husband had to write up a resume and and apply for jobs and go through job interview. You've got all this stuff on top of it, each other. You're stressed out and you know, trying to do job interviews all on top of that, and it wasn't going well. But we finally got things lined up. We found a house to rent. Um, he figured out a job, and overnight, one night in in the dark, we borrowed a trailer and moved out. And we'd hoped to get further away, but we had no very little money. And the best, the only house we found that would work that we could get was in Apple Valley, so it's six miles outside of town. So you're still just right there, right on the highway. But I had noticed I was leaving a lot because we were trying to figure things out, and I'd leave my other kids home because I didn't, couldn't have them asking questions or telling people we were driving by looking at houses all the time. Mm-hmm. And my nine-year-old, Got, he'd always, he's always been very tender. He's always been very close to me. But he got so clingy. I told him we have to run to the store and he would start crying and he was hanging on me. He didn't want me to go. If I sat down, he'd sit right by me and didn't want to to leave. He, he just got so clingy and I was so worked up in my own mind trying to figure stuff out and I thought this is such bad timing I'm trying to figure out how to get us out of here I'm trying to figure out how to save us and I felt bad because he you know my my little kids are crying because they're tired of me leaving all the time when I usually was always home and then one day it finally hit me he had sat in those meetings and I'd never talked to him at all but he was so clingy because he was going to meetings and he knew that they were going to take him away. And he was trying to get as much time with me as he could before they took him away from me. And mm-hmm. I, when it finally hit me, I, it was so heartbreaking. And I thought, you know what? He's a nine-year-old boy. If he could get through the crap he's hearing in those meetings and keep his mouth shut and not tell me 
then I felt like I could trust him to also not say anything if I told him what we were doing. And I brought him up into my room, and I told him, I said, I know that they told you at church that you can't live with us anymore because we're not worthy. But I, I, and I'm so proud of you that you've been able to keep that secret and not tell me because you felt like that's what Heavenly Father wanted. And so I know that you know how to not tell things when they're important. I said, and so I want to tell you something, but you can't tell anybody at church or anybody else outside of this room just for me and you to know. I so I just, I want you to know that that's why I've been leaving so much. We're finding a house and we're going to move out of town. And he just started sobbing and he said, I don't want to. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I've just told him that we're moving and I never thought I'd have to convince him that it would be okay, that he's not going to go to hell if we leave town. But he just started sobbing and I... I put my arms around him and I says, what's wrong? Why are you, why are you so sad? What do you not want to do? And then in the end, we, I finally, we got through it and figured out he thought that we were going to, once they took them away, the rest of us were moving away and leaving without him. Oh. But the amount of, of turmoil that in his nine-year-old mind that he'd been enduring for weeks thinking that he was going to get taken away and that his parents weren't worthy to be his parents anymore it really it was really I don't know the amount of trauma we went through in those few months it still I, I have a hard time sometimes even acknowledging that that was even really my life you know it feels so far away but we we got it figured out and my husband came home from Vegas and we waited for it to get dark shut off all the lights outside and started loading stuff up we loaded up some blankets and stuff first and drove over to the new house and unloaded, and I kept the three youngest boys there because they really weren't helpful for moving. And then my husband and our three oldest kids went back and forth and took loads, trying to bring stuff out, and you couldn't let people realize what you were doing. So if there were people out and around, then you had to wait. And so they several times had to just go back in the house and shut everything down and shut off the lights while they waited for some neighbor kid to wash his car or whatever. And I went with to take get our very last load. On the last, with the last load, I went, I went with to help load up the last of the things. And when we drove away, the sun was just coming up over the mountains. And it was a Sunday. You know, we drove that six miles, pulled in the garage. And, you know, there was all the tension and the stress and the fear of getting caught while the whole process leading up to moving and then through the night trying to move because we knew that if they, if anybody found out or realized what we were doing, they would send our families and our, 
our kids' friends over to cry and sing and pray and try to convince them not to leave. And our daughter was 18. If she chose to stay, there was really nothing we could do. And our our boys, basically, we just didn't want to have to deal with that kind of pressure and that kind of crap. But when we got there with the last load and the sun was coming up, it just it hit like a ton of bricks. First, we had this, you know, you have this feeling of, of elation that we made it. We got out. Nobody caught us. Nobody stopped us. We're all together. Our plan worked. We're out. This is so awesome. And then the gravity of what you've just done hits you. And you know that you just crossed a bridge that you can never go back. It's too late. Your family will never speak to you again. Mm-hmm. Everything that was important to you, your entire community, your friends, your family, everything is gone. That's it. You're done. And you feel incredibly alone. And the next, the the first couple months that we were out were really, really rough because we, you're still going to all the same stores that all of your family members and stuff go to. You'd go into Hurricane or St. George and go to the grocery store and people, and we didn't change how we dressed or anything. In fact, when we first left, we still completely believed. We just thought that poor Uncle Warren was stuck in prison and he didn't realize what Lyle was doing to his people. This was not according to scripture. None of this should be happening. And then eventually, of course, we found out that all this was was them bringing to the entire people what they'd been doing in to people, you know, as far as going to Zion and in Texas, whatever. It was just now coming down to everybody. This is this is what Warren had started, and so no, of course, he knew what they were doing. Hmm. But you'd go to the grocery store, and people, you know, the people that you've known, your family, your friends people would see you and they'd get this look of absolute terror in their eyes and run, hide. I mean, I had grown women run and hide behind a display in the grocery store and wait for you to walk by. And it was just, it was so desperately lonely. And you, and you go through and you question yourself, what if we're wrong? Did we just condemn our children to to hell and now what are we supposed to do you know we've got an 18 year old daughter our kids are going to want to have lives do you let them date you can't just keep them isolated forever but you know you didn't really think beyond the process of getting out and all of a sudden you're faced with all this stuff and and on the one hand there's nothing holding you from making decisions and doing things other than money of course but at the same time, it's an incredible amount of responsibility. So when we were in the church, everything was dictated for us. You, the church told you what you could and couldn't say, what you could and couldn't think, what you could read, and they controlled every aspect of your life. And it was a matter of either you do what you're told or you don't. And we did what we were told, and sometimes it worked out. And when it worked out, then you, you know, consult, you told yourself, 
that's awesome. See, we did what God asked us to, and now we were blessed for it. And if you did what God asked you to and it didn't work out, then, well, you still knew that you did the right thing. This must be a test. But all of a sudden, you're out on the outside, and, and you're thinking, okay, well, I think we should do this. And if it didn't work out, you also have to take responsibility for that, that was your decision. And what if you made the wrong decision? And what if it ends up, somebody ends up hurt or it wasn't the right thing? And it was just, even just trying to figure out how to make a choice was so overwhelming. You'd go back and forth and back and forth and try and think of all the pros and cons. And, and even small decisions felt like they were, you know, life altering and trying to make sure that you were doing the right thing. We had a few scares where we still were afraid that my father might come and try to take our kids from us, though we did know that at least with my husband and I on the same page, even if they took our kids from us, we were the only people with any legal rights to them, so eventually we'd get them back, but after how much damage, it was still terrifying. We bought padlocks and put on all the gates, and we were very vigilant about making sure the doors were locked. We didn't let the kids outside unless one of us was there in case someone came by and tried to swoop them up. We'd see the cars from, with the men from town drive past our house. We tried to keep the vehicles in the garage so maybe they wouldn't realize that that's where we were, but it really was just terrifying. And we would go through... Usually we at least staggered it. If one of us was really struggling and questioning, the other one felt like, no, we knew we did the right thing. So like my husband would call me and he's like, what if we did the wrong thing? I feel like I don't know what to do. I think maybe we made a mistake. And I would remind him all the reasons why we'd already talked about, no, this is right. And we're going to be fine. We're doing great. And then I'd start doubting and he'd get to where he was like, nope, we're great. And then I would be the one. And we spent months on this emotional roller coaster trying to figure out what to do. And you just felt numb. But after about a year, like I say, I, when I went to check the mail, and I thought, you know what? I know we did the right thing, which I already knew. But for the first time in my life, I felt truly happy and it was just like this I thought you know this is what I imagine it was supposed to feel like when you're supposed to get that burning testimony you know I just felt good I felt happy and I thought this is the most incredible thing I have ever felt in my life and I wanted so bad to be able to tell my mother and my sisters and everybody that Everybody should be able to experience this. Everybody should feel, and I honestly, I don't think I'd ever felt it in my entire life, and I don't think my mother did, at least not in, the, in my lifetime. But, you know, that was the one thing that I came to realize, that was the one truth that we'd been told, was that if you went out looking, if you went out and got on the Internet, if you went out searching for and found out what was being said about our church, that you'd lose your testimony. And it's like that's the one truth they told us. And the, the reason you lose your testimony is because you find out the truth. You find out these people were lying to you. And it just, 
uh, it was very effective. As soon as you leave, no one will talk to you. And so when you find out the truth, it helps. You know, my mother wouldn't talk to me. I couldn't tell her what I'd found out about what Warren was really doing, about the lies that we'd been being told. And that was it. And it's been almost, we left almost 10 years ago. And I, you know, I have, I'm second oldest of 23 siblings and I really have hardly any contact with any of them. None of them that are still believers will talk to me at all. The few others that have come out, I really, I'm not connected to. It's incredible that, that you guys were able to get out like that and that you had, you know, that you had each other, that you had your husband. Um, you know, a lot of times, I guess, I think I would be scared that I would want to go and my husband would want to stay. And then what would, what would happen with our kids, you know? So it's amazing that you were able to have that, that you and your husband were able to be on the same page with that. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, that was the other thing when we, it took some very careful, you know, testing the water kind of. Because for me, in my mind and heart, I was like, oh, hell no. I am not. Nobody takes my kids from me. But I didn't know how he felt about it. And, you know, the whole idea of you still were supposed to write these letters, confession letters, and they're supposed to write letters to Uncle Warren at least once a month. And there was a lot of people that, you know, someone would write and confess, oh, I was on this job and we were being too lighthearted and I was working with these people and those other people didn't report that they were too lighthearted. And so, you know, the Lord revealed that they had not been doing what's right and they didn't know. They have no idea, but they get kicked out over it. And, you know, I had no way of knowing for sure how my husband felt about it. And if I wasn't careful and he disagreed, he could then go to the bishop and be like, I don't know what to do. My wife disagrees with this and she thinks whatever. And all of a sudden I'm kicked out. My kids are hidden away. And so you had to be really, really careful. It was a very slow, careful process of both of us trying to, you know, just eke out there and until we understood that we agreed and we were on the same page. But then when it got right down to it, we were just about where we could leave they announced that they were doing a second round of interviews and so don't lose heart if you're not worthy but you feel like you know you've you've made progress and get scheduled and come get you know interviewed again and my father got up in meeting and and said there's a bunch of people here that have been through second interviews and we just haven't had a chance to tell you you're worthy but you know come get judged again and and my husband was like, I don't know, do we need, should we stay and go to these, you know, the second round and maybe they'll find us worthy and then we'll all be in and it, it'll all be okay because they won't take our kids away. And by that time point, I was done. And I told him, I says, you know, you need to do whatever you feel like you need to so that you can feel confident that 
you're doing the right thing because I, you know, we have to each be able to to know that what we're doing is right. And and so if you want to go and go through the judging again, then you need to do that. But I'm not. I I'm done. And I told him that I really, it, you know, I didn't have marketable skills. I anything, and I didn't want to be on my own anyway. I told him that. Of course, my my hope was that we could leave together, and that we could be together and figure things out. But that either way, I I still felt like I had to go. And he told me, "Oh, don't worry." He says, "I love you too much to ever try to stop you from being happy." He says, "If even if I was to decide to stay, he's like, I would never try to stop you if you felt like you needed to go." Which was real sweet for him to say, but at the same time, I felt like if he was going to go back through, if he had that much confidence in that he needed to know that he was doing the right thing, and if they then, if he told them, basically, if he wasn't ready to break free, then he was going, that meant he was in a mindset that he would feel like he needed to do whatever the church told him to, and that there was no way the church leaders would support him just letting us go. You know, talking to him, I was like, oh, that's that's awesome, and yes, you need to go, you need to make sure that you feel comfortable with leaving, and and yeah, I hope we can go together, but I'm so glad that you'll support me. And in the background, I was looking at, you know, how much money do we have in the bank? How much money do we have available on a credit card, how far could I get, where would I even go, because I knew that if he made the decision to stay, and I couldn't tell him this, of course, but that if he made the decision to stay, or if he started talking more about that he felt like he needed to stay, that my only choice was that as soon as he headed out of town to go to work in Vegas, that I would load up my kids and whatever we could fit in our big van, and... I would just head out and see how far I got, you know, before he realized it and shut off the credit cards or shut down the bank account. And I was trying to figure out where could I go? Did I have anybody I trusted? Where should I head? I was really glad that he decided that, no, he didn't need to go through a second round of judging. We were done and we just left together because it was very unusual for families to get out in one piece especially if they if you have more than one wife a lot of times you know the guy has his favorite wife and he does whatever she wants and whatever but sorry I feel like this has been mostly just a bunch of rambling it hasn't really been a very concise story I don't know if it's even gonna make a very good episode maybe no, I think, oh no it's fine I think it's very we just interesting. usually yeah, we usually like to let you, you know, tell your story in your words, how how the story is, you know, and we have not had a story yet of um, being able to escape polygamy like that. So it's it's really amazing. I I think it's I think you're right that it's very unusual that families come out intact and um, I imagine that the two of you even 
having the courage to even speak to each other about it to begin with was very frightening. It really was, <clears throat> because you, you know, for me, I truly felt like everything was at risk. You know, I had thoughts of trying to decide if I felt like there was enough of a chance that he would agree, or should I just load up and try to get out without talking to him about that. I think a lot of people don't really understand, too, uh, of like, you know, if we want to go out and make a new life, we, if you're renting a place, you just stop renting it. Or if you're, you own a place, you sell it, you know, but a lot of people don't understand how the property and everything is is owned by the church down there so when you all decide to leave it you're leaving everything like literally everything behind and you have to start with absolutely nothing and um well and i i also feel like that whether it was part of the plan you know there's a lot of things that i look at and i think so was this a conscious decision or is this just the way evil works you know and it, and it worked out that way. But it definitely made a difference in how much control they had to get gather everyone in out of other places to where you were on their turf, yeah. you know. And I have to say, I have found the most support and the most, the community where I feel the most understood and where it's like, yeah, these other people get it is has been in the ex-Mormon community far more than the ex-FLDS community. And I think a big part of it is because I don't believe in the polygamy part of it at all either. And a lot of people that leave fundamentalism don't exactly leave fundamentalism, if that makes sense. They still are so bought into the idea of polygamy and they don't, they can't, I guess for some of them, maybe it just feels like a betrayal. You know, that's so much a part of their heritage or whatever. But, you know, it's a big, it's interesting to see how many parallels there are between leaving the FLDS or one of the other polygamist groups and leaving Mormonism. There really is huge parallels. I was shocked to find out how similar the two were honestly the one thing right. that that i felt like is an advantage with leaving the regular mormon church is that you can leave and still have your home mm -hmm. for most people i think you at least have somewhat of a network outside of the church you don't lose everything you don't have to worry necessarily i mean i think there's a lot of people that you're not going to get fired for not believing in Mormonism anymore. You're not going to get evicted out of your house. And I know there are some situations where that kind of happens too, but, you know, for us, our whole lives just kept getting, just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to where we had no real connection with the outside world to a degree. And so, you know, it wasn't like, well, I left Mormonism, but I still have my job or my career or your education to back up, to back you up. 
you really do lose everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything is, is gone. You know, my husband had worked for the same company for 26 years and overnight his job is gone. And you don't have any of that. You haven't gotten any equity, I guess, to a great degree. You know, we, we didn't have a house that we could then sell and have something. We'd, we'd lost everything. And there's so much wage fraud and so much fraud of all kinds. I mean, it's just unreal. And the more I started to understand and realize it, you know, the child labor violations, the forced marriages, the child marriages, the, the rape and incest and sexual abuse and spiritual abuse, the welfare fraud. Mm-hmm. And just like for my husband, you know, I, I talked about how we moved from Salt Lake Valley down to Colorado City. And the company that he worked for moved also. And when we moved, as it was, we were, we were barely surviving. I was working four different jobs that I could do from home. You know, it was all part-time stuff, whatever, but I had these different jobs just to help us survive with my husband's wage. And when the company moved to Colorado City, once we got down there, it was announced that, hey, everybody is taking a mandatory 50% pay cut. And we no longer are going to provide insurance, health insurance, dental insurance, and no longer get any paid time off, no holidays, no sick pay, no vacation pay. And because of the laws, you know, those wicked laws that Satan controls, we can't not provide those. So on paper, it will show that you have holidays and that you took time off for vacation and whatever, but you're always going to be here working. You don't get to take time off. And, you know, then they moved to Las Vegas and it was the same thing, you know, and they were paying wages way below industry standards. And for years they were, you know, everyone was working 12 hour shifts six days a week. You got paid nothing for your Saturday work. That was all consecration. That was donated. That was Saturday projects. That was the church time. But they had everybody on, either they were on salary or they had the computer set up to where you still had to clock in to keep track of jobs and, and stuff, you know, for the tracking of inventory and whatnot through the, sh- the company. But you were required to work a 12-hour shift, and they were getting paid for either an 8-hour or a 10-hour day. They worked all, you know, 12-hour shifts on holidays. They worked 12-hour shifts on Saturdays. And the amount of money, even at the low wages that they paid, that you missed out on. Not to mention that, you know, your your Social Security for your retirement is based off how much money you made. So we also got robbed out of that hmm. because we were paying, you know, they were paying these lower wages. And it's just, it's 
one, it's just so many levels, so many degrees, and and so much of the stuff where, you know, we were told to lie and the fraud that was committed for, for welfare and whatever. And it was another one of those things where I thought, okay, you know, it's always a big deal. We've spent our whole lives being told these faith-promoting stories about how God provided. You know, if you did the right thing, then he came in and provided for things. Mm-hmm. So... If, if Heavenly Father has that kind of power and he's done it in the past, why are, why am I required to lie? Yeah. Why, why isn't Heavenly Father coming in and making up the difference? Because I was not comfortable with lying well, about I, I see, um I see so much of this with, with all, I think with all religion, with, um, with Mormonism, with fundamentalist Mormonism, um, with corporate healthcare, <laughs> you yeah. you are supposed to do everything that you can, all that you, you know, even more than you can, and be paid less. Um, yeah. And you're not supposed to say anything, or you're supposed to report whatever it is that's wrong internally, because then things can be taken care of internally, although we really know that nothing ever really gets take it, taken care of internally. It's just to make it so that it doesn't get out externally to the organizations or to the government um, organizations that are actually over those types of issues. So yeah. what is it about religion that creates these constructs or these these organizations where they make it so that people speak out of both sides of their mouth they tell you one thing that you're supposed to do and that these are the reasons you're supposed to do it but on the other hand they're doing the opposite of what they tell you that you're supposed to be doing and they justify their behavior and you know do they have no moral compass do they have no ability to discern right and wrong because what they're doing is absolutely wrong and they're expecting yeah. you to live within this life um you know the, within these these boundaries that they don't even live within you know and this is a conversation my husband and i have had many times you know the whole idea of <clears throat> was is this stuff something that they're actually consciously aware of and they plan it that way or is it just like inherently evil that's just how it works you know and i think that so that's another conversation that i've seen go on a lot people asking do you think how far up in the churches <clears throat> Do you think, basically, do you think that the guys at the top truly believe what they're teaching, or do they know it's all a lie, but it benefits them, and so they go along with it? My opinion is that that is, at least from what I watched, that's how you work your way up the ranks, is you show that you're willing to go against the rules for your benefit, 
Mm-hmm. And the rules are really just there to control the little people. Yep. yep. And, you know, so I believe that there are people that, I mean, I've seen stories of it in these ex-Mormon groups and stuff where it's like, here's this guy that he was doing great and he was working his way up and he was a bishop and stuff. And then as he got further up, he started to see kind of the inner workings. And he was like, hold on, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And you raise your hand and you go, um, excuse me, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to be. And you get punished. Yep. And and you get silenced and shut down. But if you're working your way up the ranks and you get into, you know, your bishop, whatever, and you see what's going on and your attitude is, all right, so what do I have to do to get in on this? Those are the people mm-hmm. that keep moving up the ranks further. Yeah. And so, in my opinion, the further up these organizations you get, the more likely it is that you really are just an awful, corrupt, and terrible person mm-hmm. who uses religion or whatever it is as a way to bully and oppress the little people and that it's all about greed and power usually has a whole lot to do with money and sex. Yeah. But they can, but they can speak in these really nice Sunday voices and make us all believe that they have the spirit. And what was it that Warren Jeffs would say something about stay sweet? Was that? We are supposed to keep sweet. Keep sweet. No matter what, it's a matter of life or death. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's the same in the Mormon church. The, the people that are at the top, they can speak this Mormonese, but then behind yeah. closed doors, they are not the people that they pr- profess to be. And the way that they behave and the things that they say to the world or to all of us during general conference or, you know, whatever, during whatever kind of speech that they're giving, whatever kind of conference they're talking at, it's all just at face value that we're supposed to accept the things that they're saying, and it's all just to appease us and make us feel like things are better and things are good and things are right, and we're just going to keep following blindly without looking into what's actually happening. Well, and that was another thing that we started to understand... um, on our way out of the church. Because once we started, basically once we acknowledged that there was something going on and that we weren't okay with just following along blindly, it's amazing how quick your eyes are opened Mm -hmm. and you can't close them again. Exactly, yes. yes. So what happened for me is I had spent my whole life doing what I was told and praying, you know, if I had... Sometimes things just didn't sit right with me. Mm-hmm. But we were taught that you're supposed to pray for a testimony of what you were told. And so I spent my whole life listening to these men and then praying with all the energy I had that Heavenly Father would give me a testimony of what I was told. You know, Warren Jeff gets up and says these things, whatever other men and and I was praying for a testimony of those things. Mm-hmm. And then when I was starting to question things and things just didn't seem right, I 
changed what I prayed for. And one day I was like, you know what? This is all so confusing. And I started praying that I want and saying, I want to know the truth. I don't want a testimony of what I'm being told. I need to know the truth. Hmm. And it was like the whole world opened up. And, you know, at that point I thought, there you go. I was praying for the wrong thing. And as soon as I told God I wanted the truth, then he showed it to me. And now I know that it really was that I gave my own mind permission to open my eyes. Yeah. Because the reality is, to me, it's like it's kind of like what people have said. I've told people parts of my story, and, and it always is a little bit, I don't know, cringe. You can see it with people, you know, it's like this whole pearl-clutching moment where they're, they say, I just have to know, though. I hope you didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> I hate that term. Oh. And I've had conversations with people that I'm like, I'm not sure, you know, what do you mean? I mean that you still believe in God and Heavenly Father. And I says, well, it's a little bit tough because they're like, you know, because God is real and, and whatever. And I was like, I spent, especially the last year to five years of my time in the church, praying more than you can even imagine. I prayed all the time. And especially in the last year, I was praying desperately, asking Heavenly Father to help me figure this out because I felt like I was just almost in this free fall. I was following all the instructions. I was doing what I was told, and it just didn't feel good, you know? Mm -hmm. And... I've had people tell me, oh, well, you were praying to the wrong God. You were praying to the God of Warren Jeff. And I was like, so you're telling me <laughs> that, that Heavenly Father is this all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful being who loves me. And I was in this desperate, horrific place where I was pleading with him for help where my life was utter hell, and he sat up there in heaven and went, well, she's calling me by the wrong name. I'd like to help her, but really? Yeah. No. I says, you know, and a lot of times it, it has been, there have been Mormons that have done this, and I was like, so, I mean, I probably know their scripture better than they do because we studied all of it. Mm -hmm. Rip. And I was like, so... You know, they're like, well, you, you pray into the wrong God. You, you didn't say the right things. It's like, well, then why wouldn't, when I asked to know the truth, why didn't Heavenly Father come down and point me to your prophet as the person? Why, when I, when I did pray, when I did the things, and I got a testimony, you know, mm -hmm. why would God give me a testimony of, of the wrong prophet guy? And, of course, you know, that's something that, that nobody can answer. It really is that it's kind of funny because since I left the church, I now can get that whole, that feeling, that burning, you know, mm -hmm. that I worked so hard to get. I can now do it on cue. All I have to do is think about something that makes me happy, you know, or whatever. Yep. And I don't know. It's like I've. I've told my kids, and, I, and I'll tell people. I had somebody one time say, you know, but, but what do you believe? So I just don't even know what to believe anymore. I want to believe that, 
that we'll still be together as families forever. And, and I says, you know, I spent way too much time of my life, even after I left the church for a while, where I was wasting my energy and my emotions and my, and I was worried and trying to figure out what, what is real. And there is no way to know. Yeah. All that I know is I have today. Mm -hmm. I know what this life holds and the way I see it, I intend to work hard and be honest and be basically all those things that I already tried to be my whole life. I'm going to continue that. I'm going to teach my kids to be good human beings and to be compassionate and kind and caring, to be honest, to work hard. And the way I see it, when I die, if there's a God, I'll find out then. And I trust that the life that I have lived is enough. Mm-hmm. If there's a God that understands everything, then he already saw the hell I've been through in this life. And I would hope that he'd have some understanding and compassion on me for, you know, maybe not having a lot of trust in him at this point. Mm-hmm. And if the God that I was taught about in Mormonism is really the guy, then why would I want to go to that heaven? Is it really heaven? <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking about is that, so that I think the most truth that I've found after leaving the Mormon church is that instead of praying, um, learning that, the whole premise of religion and of praying to God and of trusting in these men who hold the priesthood is that you learn not to trust yourself and not to trust your own instinct. And you learn to question yourself and question whether or not this is the right thing and question whether or not I'm feeling the spirit, question whether or not I feel good. Is this the right feeling? Do I have the spirit? Do Am I worthy? Am I all these things? When leaving the church, for me, I was able to go back to none of this has any bearing on the church and none of this, the church has no ownership and no power over my feelings and how my intuition is and how my how I feel about myself or what has happened around me and what what I've learned is that all those good feelings you were just talking about just thinking about something like something somebody you love or uh, talking about something that is truthful you know telling your own story and hearing it and knowing that you are telling the truth even though at one point people did not believe you, knowing that you're telling the truth, having somebody else believe you, having people validate your story gives you a sense of, um, of happiness or um, validation and, and that gives you a rush of dopamine. And dopamine, I taught a lesson in Relief Society when I was teaching Relief Society and I usually taught a um, kind of a little health or science lesson at the very beginning um, about our bodies Um, and the one that I taught that had something to do with depression had to do with dopamine and that some people will not be able to feel the Holy Ghost um, if they are depressed because they can't get up that 
that dopamine level. And so it, it actually was a very interesting lesson, um, even though I don't necessarily believe in the Holy Ghost now. I believe in my own power to feel and own my own feelings and recognize my own feelings and trust myself when I know that I feel good or know that I don't feel good. It's just like when you told your daughter that the things that the the people in the church were telling her they may be sacred or they may not be sacred, but the way that she could tell is by listening to her own feelings. And that was yeah. probably one of the most important things that that uh, that I heard that you told your child in this story and that we need to tell ourselves outside of our religious um, upbringings is that when we feel good, it is probably something that is good. And if we feel bad, it is probably not something that's good for us. And the reality to me is, is that that is building a heaven on earth. And if we can build a heaven on earth by just doing those things that are good, that feel good to us, that are feeling like we, you know, when I do something nice for somebody else, that feels good to me. So service is a good thing. It's not something that was bad that was taught to us and in our religions Yes, do service and do it without expectation of something in return. But don't do it in in this way that it's it's expected and you have to do this much service every month and and give all the glory to the church. It yeah. it needs to be that we trust ourselves again. We trust in in how we feel. We trust our intuition. I'm a firm believer in heaven on earth. If we can't feel heaven on earth and feel happy and peaceful and joy while we're here, why would we ever want to live forever anywhere? For sure. And, you know, that's another thing that I found because, you know, and they really, I feel like I was robbed of the vocabulary I needed Mm -hmm. to understand my own feelings and my own thoughts and the idea that you have to have a powerful man to validate Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, like we were taught, or just to tell us, you you pray. You need to get inspiration that women have the right to receive inspiration for their own lives. And I was like, cool, <laughs> but the Lord will never give you inspiration that differs from your priesthood head. So when I felt in my gut, or you know, I'd do whatever, and I'm like, this is what I should be doing, I feel good about it, and, you know, I, to me, the only language I had at the time was, I felt the spirit when I was doing these things that were good or healthy or whatever, but then, you know, my husband or my father would say, no, that's not what you're supposed to do, it creates this, this confusion in your mind, then why does it feel good, mm-hmm. and you start to associate your intuition with the it's lying to you. Yep. You never trust yourself again. (laughs) Yeah. You learn, you learn not to trust yourself. And you do. And you know, well, so it took me a long time. It felt like, you know, I, we got out of the church and we lived in Apple Valley for about a year and a half, and then we moved back to the Salt Lake Valley because we just weren't surviving down there, and it was too hard being being that close to the community and seeing everybody, and it just, 
it, it wasn't working. So we moved back up to the Salt Lake Valley, and I got a job outside the house for the first time in, like, since I was very first married. And, and different opportunities opened up, and I ended up going to a program called Venture through... Um, it's part of the Clemente program, and it was actually through Westminster College there in Salt Lake. And it's a five-class course on the humanities. Hmm. And if you participated in the class, you could earn college credit. Okay. And going to college had always been like this huge dream of mine that, of course, I was never allowed to do. But because I wanted that college credit, it pushed me to actually participate in class, which meant I had to raise my hand and I had to answer questions. And that was the first place where I started really feeling like I had a voice and that I could, my thoughts, my feelings, my voice were valid. And, you know, it was where we, were, we read To Kill a Mockingbird and we were having a discussion about the courtroom, and I can't remember the names now, but there was, um, there was the black man, and the girl had, I think the father walked in, and, they, and she was kissing him. Anyway, great big court case, all this stuff. We were having this conversation. They're asking, you know, what did you think about this certain scene? And everybody, you know, other people raised their hands and, and would tell their, what it made them think of or feelings or whatever, and... I was sitting there thinking, but nobody's telling, you know, nobody's getting it right. Nobody, I thought as long as someone else would say it, it would be okay. But nobody saw it the way I did, and so I finally raised my hand and, and told how I saw it. And, you know, people were upset because why would she lie and get that poor black man in trouble knowing what it would do to him? And, and for from my standpoint, I don't know if you've read the book, but um, I saw it as here's this girl who desperately wanted to feel important and her father treated her like crap. She was, you know, not, not treated well, not taken care of. And this black man came along and he was the only person that was genuinely good to her. And yet at the same time, she also, and so she was attracted to him. And at the same time, society and her father wouldn't accept that. And when you're used to being punished your whole life, your first instinct is to protect yourself. And so she lied because it made it easier. And nobody laughed. Nobody said that was stupid. Nobody disagreed with me. You know, the professor was like, that's a really good point. I never thought about it that way. And it was like it, it flipped this switch, and I was like, wait a minute, you mean maybe my thoughts aren't just crazy, and I'm not just wicked, and I have, my voice has value? And that course absolutely changed my life. It, it showed me that I, my, that I had a voice, my voice had value, and I went from that course to the Humanities and Focus course where I learned how to make documentary films and did a documentary. And then I went to 
slick after that and got my associate's degree in psychology. And all of that is just, it was absolutely not just life-changing, but stuff that I never in a million years thought I would ever be allowed to do. And it just felt good to have the freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. That's really amazing. Thank you for all of this, Brenda. I think it's really inspiring that you were, that you ultimately went and got your education. That's something I still haven't done yet. And I just think that's, really really cool I loved it if I if I had the time and the money I don't know if I'd ever stop I think I'd just take you know at least one or two college classes all the time I loved it but I mean I can't complain I got to get through it I actually took my last two or three finals online at the library up here in Washington because we moved from Salt Lake to Washington right at the end of the semester. <clears throat> and I finished it off up here, but I think education is absolutely crucial. And, you know, for anyone who's interested in it, and I wish that our education system was set up better to where I feel like we basically, as a society, we're missing out on some of the most brilliant minds that ever lived because people can't afford to go and get an education. People can't afford to pursue their dreams. And, and some of it is that, you know, if you're working three jobs just to survive, you don't have the time or energy. And yet there's, I do believe there's people out there that have the best ideas. And if we could just open up the world and and help us all free our mind that we could live in a much better place yeah absolutely well i think we should wrap it up for today do you have anything else that you want to just make sure that we get in here i think that you know at first i thought i don't know if i if this is even the place for me to tell my story because i i feel like other people had such so much more powerful stories, but I think that there's that one thing that people, it's hard to acknowledge, but I think that people need to understand is that there's really not that much difference between the fundamentalist Mormons and the mainstream Mormons, and saying that offends both sides, you know, the fundamentalists are like, oh no, we're so much different than the mainstream Mormons. They don't follow the rules and they're apostate. And the mainstream Mormons are like, oh no, we're not crazy like those fundamentalists. But the reality is we all, at the core, it's the same, the same teaching. And I think that if more people could comprehend that, maybe it would help them open their eyes to the issues that the church even today, still has in controlling people's lives. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's, there's extremes, of course. But, like, for instance, it wasn't until Sam Young started talking about stuff with Bishop's interviews that I comprehended the damage that's done there. And that's something that we didn't do in the FLDS. We did not have one-on-one -on -one interviews. Mm. And so... Anyway, there's, you know, there's all the different things, but 
basically anytime you have an organization that's that controlling and that is that lacking in equity, whether it's by gender or race or or worthiness, you know, this arbitrary idea of worthiness, it's not a healthy environment. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you letting me tell my story. I appreciate that you were uh, willing to give us this perspective, and I agree with you that I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between uh, mainstream Mormonism and fundamentalism. And so, you know, maybe we'll piss off a lot of people together by saying that, and it's okay. We're fine with it. Yeah. Well, Deborah um, and I don't mind pissing people off. <laughs> That's true. I've, I've definitely put my share of that. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it, especially if people get really bothered by it, then a lot of times if people are that bothered, they don't want to go into real discussion. But sometimes it's been interesting when people are like, they're nothing alike. And if you ask them, okay, so can you show me what it is, where, what is different? What is the differences? Sometimes it's hard for them to really say. I mean, yeah. other than, you know, the dress code and actually living polygamy here on the earth. And honestly, with some of the stuff I've seen coming out of the mainstream church, I have some genuine concerns that they may be gearing towards going back to introducing polygamy if they aren't already doing it at the higher level. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? decriminalize polygamy and for all the hatred that Mormons like to talk about the fundamentalists and knowing how things go in Utah that basically nothing, no laws, nothing passes in Utah without, you know, the stamp of approval from higher up, at least not yep. without a lot of noise, and there was nothing. The church had nothing to say. Yep. And it passed so so easily and so quickly with so little, you know, fanfare that all I could think is, wow, apparently the church is okay with this because otherwise we would have heard about it. Mm-hmm. Which is concerning. Yeah. It, I have yet to see religious polygamy lived in a way that isn't abusive and coercive and that doesn't end up going into underage marriage for several reasons. But mm-hmm. being that you run out of people. Yep. There's not enough girls around, and so you have to keep going into the younger and younger generations. Mm-hmm. And the other, which some men in the FLDS actually openly admitted, that you've got to marry these girls off when they're still really young, because if you wait till they're adults, they aren't willing, and they're right. not as easy to coerce and keep trapped. Yeah. It's true. This is a little aside here that I just remembered that's quite disgusting. When my father married his third wife, she was not exactly a happy and willing participant. Mm-hmm. It got sprung on her. They actually were at the wedding of my sister. So my sister married her brother, so there's these little groups of people there for the wedding, and they took care of that wedding, and then 
Warren just looks at his father, Rulon, and says, Do, should we take care of the other marriage? The people are here. Oh, and he's like, yeah, they are. So let's do that. And so this girl got told right there in the room while she's at her brother's wedding that she is marrying my dad. Oh, jeez. And it's not like you can really say no. But so they they get married, you know, it's get sprung on you. Here you are, you get to marry this nasty old man. And she's younger than me, you know. But her father talked to my father and to just to make sure he understood and let him know that it was very important, especially where she wasn't very excited about it, that he consummate the marriage early and often because, for one, you, you hope that the girl likes sex and that you can, you know, convince her to stay with you for, for that. And two, once a girl, once you get a girl pregnant and she has kids, then it's really hard to get away, partly because you have legal rights to her child. Mm-hmm. And it usually helps settle girls down once you get them pregnant. And, oh. I mean, that's, yep. that's really the way they look at it. It's not about choice. It's not about did you want to have kids. It's actually a control tactic that they're on purpose trying to make sure they hurry and get these girls pregnant Mm -hmm. to track. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're really young and you don't even know how your body works because nobody taught you. Yep. It's horrible. Well, Hmm. again, thank you for letting me ramble. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Brenda. Thanks for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. You can follow us at latterdaysurvivors.org, on Facebook at Latter-day Survivors, on Instagram at Latter-day Survivors. On TikTok, we each have our own TikTok. Kendra's is Latter-day Survivors, and mine is Latter-day Survivors Dana. That's D-A-Y-N-A. You can follow our Twitter at LD Survivors. You can go to our website at latterdaysurvivors.org and donate. It helps us keep bringing this podcast to you. And we also want to encourage you to follow Cody Francis. You can find him on Spotify and all music streaming services. Go out and support him too. We thank you guys for joining us and we hope that you'll come back next time that you'll share our podcast and that you'll tell your friends. We are your hosts, Kendra Solani and Dana Brown. And as survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place, where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. 
Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. story I'm gonna freaking tell it 